Every day, traders and investors dive in to tackle the ever-changing markets to find opportunity. Futures Radio Show is your number one source for answers to the questions that all market participants want to ask. Veteran futures trader Anthony Crudelli sits down with the most influential leaders and top traders in the industry. Now, here's your host, Anthony Crudelli. What's up, everybody? Anthony Crudelli here, and thank you for tuning in to the Best Moments episode for January 2020. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group, the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. CME Group's markets help individuals and businesses around the world effectively manage risk. For access to free educational tools and resources for the active individual trader, please visit activetrader.cmegroup.com. Remember, new shows are posted on Mondays and Thursdays. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes. This show is also sponsored by Trading Technologies, FTSE Russell, RJO Futures, and Top Step Trader. To learn more about some of the offers that these sponsors have for our listeners, please visit futuresradioshow.com slash sponsors. Huge start to the year for Futures Radio Show. We kicked off the year with my annual podcast with Morad Askar, a.k.a. Futures Trader 71. Then followed that up with some fantastic traders. Ira Harris, Tommy Thornton, Jim Dalton, Larry Tenerelli, Richard Metzger, and Christian Fromhurst. I pieced together some of my favorite clips from these interviews. So without further ado, let me take you to the best moments for January 2020. I want to talk about something that you and I discuss every single year is a theme that you're focused on for the upcoming year. What are you focusing on heading into 2020? So you, you, you've kind of hit on it, uh, you know, for convergent trading for our um, community and members and pretty much anybody that follows me on Twitter, the, the theme for the year is going to be consistent improvement. We want to hammer on that deliberate, um, focused practice every day. What are you going after today? What are you looking to accomplish today? Because if you don't have that very, very clear in your notes, uh, you know, taped on your screen or whatever, then that's time. Today's another opportunity that's wasted. Uh, so there's a, there's a, you know, that's where that kind of journaling process comes in. How do I know what consistent improvement is if I'm not tracking what my performance has been and what my issues are? If I'm not able to identify what it is that I keep doing wrong, you know, you could talk to a lot of people who are, who are millionaires on a simulator. They go live and it's just, they can't, just not able to pull a tick out of the market. And it's, it's, you know, so now we can identify what has changed between that simulation environment versus live. If they're being disciplined in a simulator, that's where the journaling comes. So the next step then becomes what is our targeted improvement area and, and focus on that. You know, if we can come in and focus on, getting rid of our errors because that's what eats our lunch as traders it's 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 the demon uh we come in and you know we we have fomo so we chase a trade we we cancel a trade because somebody of ours on a skype channel or 
or on Twitter said something against it. Uh, we, we clicked the wrong button. We've got the wrong size. We're in the wrong, uh, you know, expiration. Those are all errors. The, the more we can eliminate, the better. Uh, so consistent improvement, if that is not the centerpiece of what we're doing on a, on a daily basis with, with a Sunday night review of last week and then setting out what those, what the new parameters or maybe a refined, more refined parameter set uh, for the week is, if we don't have consistent improvement, it may take, you know, 10 years before it clicks and we're like, ah, this is what I need to do. Uh, for me personally, it's the same thing. You know, I, your show has been really hammering on the macro side of things with, uh, you know, guests like Ira and others. Uh, and I feel like having come similar to you from a scalping background, I'm often missing as much prep as I do, I'm often missing the bigger global macro type of theme. You know, how how is this market up here at 3,200, the 3,200 area, let's say, in the S&Ps? How is it doing that with impeachment pending, with blah, blah, blah? They, well, there are other forces there um, that, that are in play that I just don't understand. So I'm spending a fair amount of time uh, reading through blogs and trying to, you know, doing my best to understand how these things tie together. I feel like the 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 driver, the race car driver that comes in and just laps around the track as fast as possible, uh, which which is okay, but I feel like I could be a much better driver if I understood, um, you know, what's what's driving, what's 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 pushing. You know, the newer engines, the new aerodynamics, the new composites that go into new, new tires, um, the, the, their failure points, uh, why we're going in that direction, the rules and how they're changing on my Formula One um, circuit and things like that. I feel like I can't just show up and just drive, uh, which is how I've always kind of been. I can prepare. Yes, I know the track and I know which turn. And I know what gear I need to be in. I know when to, to hit the brakes, when to accelerate and all that stuff. But I more want to understand, come in understanding the business and what drives the business and, and how things are flowing. So I'm on the same boat as you uh, in terms of uh, taking a bigger and bigger picture view on the market. And in a way, I feel like uh, we were kind of you, – you started trading before me. But I feel like we're uh, you and I uh, specifically are at the almost the same level of maturity uh, in terms of trading, and I feel like as as we get older, that bigger picture becomes more and more relevant. What global macro themes are you focused on right now, and specifically how they are impacting the markets that you are trading? Okay. Wow, that's a very uh, good question. Okay. So we've, you know, the year is young, but one of the things that we've talked about is that the markets have been too complacent because of the uh, actions of central banks over the, the last de decade, more, a little bit more than a decade already, and the impact that they've had on the market. And again, we see it this week, um, Friday, or Thursday, late Thursday afternoon, when there was news about the uh, assassination of the Iranian uh, general and 
probably the second most powerful man in Iran. Um, the markets acted uh, just like you would anticipate them to act, and then they calmed down, although the gold and a few other um, uh, safe haven assets, although not the end. The end is kind of kind of set in here as, as the others, and they reacted uh, because of the uncertainty that this, you know, and the fears that were surrounding people. But equity markets, again, as we sit here, we're back to where, you know, it's uh, almost, uh, I think, 2 o'clock in the afternoon where you're at, 1 o'clock Chicago time. And equity markets are almost back to, well, they're, I, I believe that they're higher than they, they were on December 31st. Uh, they are, or roughly sitting there. So they, they're taking this in stride and not being uh, as worried about it as uh, some of the uh, more risk-off. The metals are hanging in here, but they may be actually the same thing, which is central banks, this will keep central banks uh, lower for longer. So, you know, why not uh, party on? And uh, to me, it's just building up the complacency. And it's like, it's like how ranges, you know, as markets become more volatile, ranges grow. Well, these ranges will grow as the world becomes more volatile because there's certainly, you know, as I like to write about, I didn't do it this year, but in many years past with the blog, talked about potential prairie fires that exist out there. And it, and it takes a single spark to light those prairie fires. So certainly uh, the tinder of a dry prairie is the Mideast. And we saw how a, a, um, a spark could, could ignite it. Nothing's really uh, unfolded yet, but eyes are upon it. But because of uh, then the belief that money's going to stay loose, they go back and they start purchasing assets because, you know what, why not? Why not? They're not they're not frightened enough to flee what has been a phenomenal trade. So that's where we. I do want to talk about some of your positions right now and just some of the things that you are currently seeing in the market. Well, I'm, to be quite honest, I'm I'm short um, indices and I've been wrong on them. And uh, I I use demark indicators and. Uh, one of the things that is very important about DeMarc indicators is they don't always work. Um, and people always think it's some like guru type thing that they work all the time. Uh, it's really important when they don't work that you understand that it, it's a trend following and trend exhaustion tool. And when the trend exhaustion does not exhaust up or down, it's telling you that the trend is quite strong and then you have to perhaps look for another indicator uh, that that could recycle and I know that sounds um, a bit counterintuitive but um, the the thing that I'm, I'm looking at this market currently as very similar to a couple other markets maybe the late 99 1999 move uh, when the Fed really you know put some Y2K stimulus together uh, maybe more so like the late 2017, uh, January 18 type move. Uh, we had several, several DeMarc indicators that exhausted and we saw like a little 2% pullback. And we had one, um, a pullback uh, just recently after an indicator hit, but it just went right back up. 
And that was a good tell. You know, I want to know when they're failing. And, and I mean, Paul Tudor Jones has always said, you know, he wants to see when they're failing, uh, maybe more so when they're working. Uh, but the thing I'm looking at right now uh, is the overwhelming evidence. And you can look at it very simply. You know, when you have a NASDAQ uh, trading it uh, with an RSI at 78 uh, on the weekly, uh, or excuse me, 86 on the weekly, uh, 77 on the daily, it's just super extended. And you don't necessarily want to say, oh, I want to keep going here. I want to keep, you know, keep, you know, keep going here. You want to be out before the music stops. And that's, that's what I did in 2018. I was out, uh, really pushed people out um, with hedge fund telemetry in the first week of 2018. And then right on the January 24th top, we had another upside exhaustion signal. Um, I bought puts and that January or that February smash, I think we were down what 10% pretty quickly, gave back just a ton of gains. Uh, those puts were just enormous for my whole year. Hey everybody, a quick pause here to talk about FTSE Russell. They are a leading global provider of benchmarks, analytics, and data solutions. The Russell 2000 Index is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 Index Futures Contract, symbol R-T-Y. For more information on FTSE Russell and their products, please visit FTSERussell.com. Okay, well, let's talk about your overall trading process, and we'll begin with your preparation. Take us through what you're doing each morning to prepare for the day before you begin trading. Well, it's not in the morning. The first thing I do to prepare for the trading day is at the close of the previous day. As a short-term and mostly day trader, as you end a particular day, your focus is usually very narrow very tightly narrowed. And as you know from trading for many years, markets get a tone for a particular day. Once that day is over, the tone may be gone. And it's easy, for example, on Friday, um, the market was breaking uh, hard on the close. And if you were just focused on what price was doing right then, very short term, you get very negative. So the first thing I do, the minute the market closes, I go to the bar charts and I go to the monthly bar. So I go from the shortest time frame as I close the day immediately to the longest time frame, which, is, which I use as the longest, the monthly bar. I then go from the monthly to the weekly to the daily and then back to the profiles as I prepare for the following session. For example, last Friday, the market was not complete. For example, the high, the all-time high existed in the overnight market. If you observe markets over a long period of time, you will know that it's unusual for an overnight or electronic high to last for very long. That's just simply one data point. The next data point last Friday's high was not complete. In other words, there was no excess or single prints at the top of the profile. Additionally, when I look at it, volume was below average. So even though you had price selling off uh, quite sharply and selling off near the close, 
when you go back and look at the charts, you say, wait a minute, the trend is up. And the trend is the most important thing I think that you're going to deal with in the market. So I said, I bit my mind back and I said, okay, the trend remains higher. Then I work backwards. And when I get back to the profile, then I start thinking about preparation for individual trades. And that then becomes a question of looking at data points. So one data point would have been the high being all time high being made in the overnight market. So that's a, a data point that says the odds are we could go higher. The second data point was that no excess or completion to Friday's high. That suggested we could go higher. And the third major data point was volume was below average as the market broke on Friday. So I put a tweet out this weekend and I said, you know, all I saw was liquidation on Friday. So as part of my preparation, I'm saying, saying all I saw was liquidation on Friday. I didn't see a more potent combination of liquidation and new money selling. If I'd have seen, you know, higher volume, uh, better tops, I may say, wait a minute, maybe we have change going on. So when I put out a post this week and I said, you know, I don't see any indication of any significant change having taken place in the market. And of course, I don't know, I'm not looking at the market right now, but we've been, uh, you know, inside um, yesterday or Friday's range. Then when it gets to the morning, which is, you know, when just before the market opens, I look and I see what has happened in overnight activity. Overnight activity, we measure from the close of the previous session. So all of the trade overnight was higher. I think for seven or eight days in a row, there has been a counter auction or a correction relative to overnight inventory. So overnight inventory gets too long. A counter auction would be some selling to bring that inventory back into balance. And of course, we got some liquidation this morning that brings that inventory back in the balance before the market moves higher. So I'm prepared with that. Next, I say, where are we going to open? And I look and I say, we're going to open today someplace in about the center of Friday's range. When I see an opening in the center of Friday's range, say the odds are that there's no significant change today. More than likely, we're going to see a rotational market, some rotation up, some rotation down, bringing the market into short-term balance. And that's consistent with um, on the on January 14th, Tuesday, January 14th, tomorrow, we start to see the earnings season get underway with, you know, people like JP Morgan, uh, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, etc. So, you know, the market's taking a little breather and let's see what tomorrow brings because that could usher in change or increased volatility. Okay, just a couple of things I want to clarify first is you you only trade the e-mini S&P or at least that's your primary market, correct? That's my primary market because most of my time now is spent on education and it's the best and most efficient market in order to conduct education. And going through your preparation, you wait for the close of the day and then just talk to us about how you are your process for this. I mean, I understand that you said you're looking at monthly, weekly, daily, and then you're going to market profile. Are you then writing notes down? 
are you marking things on your charts? Are you writing notes so the next morning you wake up, you you have this stuff in front of you to then get ready to anticipate for the day? Yes. The contrast, a lot of people think they're doing their preparation by marking important points or references on their charts and graphs. I think that is insufficient. What I like to do is when I do my research, I like to bring it down to paragraph form. And the reason I like to bring it to paragraph form is one of the most important things we deal with in trading is synthesis. And in order to and it's too many people trade off of, you know, single references, and it's really much more complicated than that. But the synthesis allows me to bring all the pieces together. For example, when I write up for the for Friday and I get prepared for Monday, it's okay. Part of the, the, the biggest picture is that all trends re, all trends remain higher. There was no indication. There was no indication of any serious uh, selling, and the market appears to be overextended in my opinion but no indication that there's been completion to the current upside auction so then i the synthesis comes out that i don't anticipate any major change taking place on the start of the following week but i think putting it in paragraph form um is far more important than fooling yourself by just marking down references. It used to be when, when I ran a trading disc, I ran an institutional trading disc. And when I knew a trader was in trouble or with a position, or at least I thought they were in trouble, I would bring them into my office. I'd put a legal pad in front of them. I'd say, write down your thoughts on the trade. And they said, oh, I understand the trade. I said, no, no, write it down. And what I found, if you can't write down in a paragraph, synthesis of what you're really looking at, your clarity on the market isn't anything or even close to the level that you think it is. You start to write it down and you stumble, you better stop and take a second look. So I think it's important to put it in paragraph form, which is my way of making sure that I've addressed synthesis. You mentioned that you scaled out of one of your positions. I can't remember, Are you have you always been scaling in or out of your positions or is it something new? And also, what's the reason for you to take a scale off? Is there a technical reason at some point? Is it a dollar amount that you've made or even lost on a position? What triggers a scale? That's, that's a really good question. Uh, and, and I've got to tell you, Anthony, you, I just want to compliment you. You ask some really, really good questions and I appreciate that. So scaling is, is another part of my evolutionary process. And this is something that started probably two years ago. And, and what I constantly look to do is I'm always looking to refine my process. And, and what I do is I analyze my, my trades and I say, okay, you know, what do I feel? that I could do better here? Or what do I feel would increase my returns or reduce my volatility? And and what I found with traditional trend following is, is the very old school trend following is you get a signal, you take a position, you ride it, and then when you get a reversal signal, you close out your position. One of the drawbacks that I experienced with that, and, and it's not that it's a drawback with trend following per se, but the, an issue that I ran into is I'd wind up having these big winners and then by the time I would get the reversal signal, I'd wind up giving back 30 or 40% of the move. And, and that wasn't something that I was happy with. 
So what I what I started to do, and I used the same uh, technical indicators. I really don't go into the indicators, but what I started to do is I put together a rule where if I'm in a position and it goes up 20 percent, then there's a there's a chance that I'll scale, you know, 10 to 15 percent out of that piece just based on usually it's based on ATR uh, range expansion. So if a stock's trading in a low volatility range, and then like for example, this happened last uh, summer with Roku. So I got into Roku at 94, and that was on a pullback to the 50-day moving average, and I, I put the chart up when I did it. So I got into Roku at 94. I, I think I had a 12% stop, and I started I started down about six or seven dollars. But then Roku started to go straight up. It started to get a little bit parabolic. So what would happen? is I scaled out probably three or four times, I think, along the way, because every time it would make one of these large volume spikes and the ATR would spike, you know, you never know, is that spike going to be the final spike or does it keep going? So what I found is if I take a little bit off and hit the cash register, but still keep the core position in, what it allows me to do is I never know when the top is going to be, but what it allows me to do is scale some up on the way it's increased my P&L, but it's also reduced the volatility in the accounts. Yeah, for me, as an intraday futures trader, I have been someone who's been scaling in and out of positions really since the beginning. And, and one of the things that I really like about scaling, specifically about out of a trade, is a question I get all the time. How do you hold on to winners longer? Well, I could say in my career holding on to a winner with a full position from beginning to end has maybe happened a handful of times. This is over 20 years in my sure. career. Um, I tend to hold a fraction of that position to the final point that I think it could reach a lot easier on the brain and the body because I've scaled some off. I, I just feel for me when I scale back on a position that it helps me feel better about holding it uh you know and, and that's just for me psychologically everybody's different a lot of people just feel just as good about holding a full position as a you know a smaller position but for me holding it throughout the day to a target that i think it can go allows me to deal with the volatility a lot better and i just tend to sit back and watch i mean i know that you're trading on a much longer time frame but do you find that that by scaling it helps you hold these positions longer one thousand percent. I I I couldn't agree with you more. And because what happens is if if it becomes an all or nothing proposition, and, and I got into some some things that became volatile. So I got into Bitcoin. Uh, luckily, I think it was April or May. Whenever it went over five thousand, I took the ETF GBTC, and then it just started to go through the roof. And and if I was in an all or nothing, where I'm either going to sell all of it or keep all of it, I think I probably would have bailed out on the position much, much, much too soon. And and I've got a few stocks that the same way, like Shopify is a core example. If I had to make an all or nothing decision on these positions, I, I probably get it wrong 100% of the time. And then I, I'd sell a position and then watch the stock go up another 100 points and ask myself, you know, where did I go wrong? So by scaling, to me, scaling is is the best of all worlds because if if you scale a position today, you've got a profit. You take you take some off the table. If the stock continues to go up, that's great. 
that's what you want it to do. That's why you're still there. And if for some reason you're lucky enough and you caught it near the top and it starts to head back down, well, at least you've locked in some gains that are higher priced. And in, in either case, it's going to increase your risk adjusted return. So it's, it's one of the best things that I've, that I've implemented and I've been doing it for about two years now, I guess, and it's really helped me out. Hey, everybody, I want to take a quick pause and talk about RJO Futures. They are a long-standing brokerage firm with personal broker relationships to learn, discuss, and trade the futures markets. To learn more about RJO Futures, please visit rjofutures.com. How were your results as a discretionary trader? They were not good. <laughs> I mean, I had, uh, you know, there were various accounts that I that I had blown through a couple times. Um yeah, I mean, I, I just, there were certain times where I, I had good runs, but for the most part, I would usually give it back. I was just not built to be a discretionary trader. I mean, most discretionary traders I know, and that I've heard a lot on, on your podcast, you know, they're, they're disciplined. They, um, you know, they're able to kind of control their emotions a lot better. For me, it just was always really difficult. Um, I remember the flash crash uh very well because um i did extremely well on on the crash uh we were short i I think about 10 s p not we but i was short about 10 s p mini contracts but over the next couple days i gave it all back and so that was kind of the the pattern um i just i I really didn't do i was not profitable in that discretionary period for me so i'm curious what gave you the confidence that moving over to the quantitative side that you'd be successful there? Ooh, I love that question. So what, what did it was, I, I, I remember one of the first algos I coded was a very simple algorithm. Basically what it did is, um, is I was convinced that if you had a big gap up, that the correct trade would be to go short. So this is before I was a quantitative trader. I was a typical day trader that gap up, you know, you go short, put a stop just above the, where maybe where, where it opened. And then once it fills the gap, you get out. And that's, that's kind of what I thought would work. And I remember writing the code for that. And, um, and what, as soon as it did the first back test, I started realizing, wow, this, this just does not really back test well. Um, and, and there's a lot of things that go into this. I mean, it depends on the index, on where your actual entry is, where your actual stop. So I'm not saying that you can't do a gap fill strategy that would work. But for me, um, it just, I, I couldn't get it to work. It just didn't, you know, the, the back-tested results were horrible. So finally what I did is I said, you know what, I'm just going to go long and see what happens. And that was my first aha moment because what I realized is that the hard trade to make on a big gap up is to go long, at least for me. Most day traders are very comfortable going short, but, but buying into that kind of strength is very difficult. It was for me. When I ran that back test, suddenly I realized, wow, that's it. Um, and that's, that's when I started thinking a little bit differently. Instead of thinking, I'm going to force my strategy on the market, I started thinking in terms of, I'm going to let the algo and the code do the hard trade, the trade that's really difficult to make as a discretionary trader, and just kind of see what happens. And, um, and you know, it's not perfect. I mean, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect system. But in that case, I started feeling like I wasn't fighting against the tide anymore and I was going kind of with the market um, as opposed to fighting against it. 
which I know is cliche, but yeah. <laughs> so it was the back testing that gave you the confidence? Yeah, I would say the back test is what gave me the initial confidence. And uh, as anyone that, that does quantitative trading knows, back testing has incredible limitations. So, I mean, it, it gives you, in essence, the most optimistic results someone could, could probably expect. Um, although expect is too strong of a word, but on a, on a first pass, yeah, the back test is what gave me the confidence, but what really did it was kind of seeing, uh, seeing the trend continue kind of a year later after the back test. So in other words, after the optimization is done and now you're in sort of a blind walk forward mode, seeing those results are really what kind of clinched it. Um, and, and there's still emotions, you know, involved. I mean, you, you could have three losing trades in a row on that algo where you're going long on a, on a gap, on a gap up. But what, what, what the back test does is it, it gives you sort of a frame of reference. So if you then lose three trades in a row, as soon as you, as soon as you start that strategy, you can at least look at the back test and say, well, was there any other time where we lost three in a row? And, oh yeah, right there we did. Actually it happened 10 times and here it, we lost six in a row. So it, it just gives you sort of a um, uh, kind of a, a ledge to rest on, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, because when you go through those drawdowns, it's number one, not a surprise, you know, so you're not changing course. You're not changing a strategy just because you have a drawdown. You're not searching for answers. You're like, look, at this is part of it, and we're going to stick with it. That's exactly right. So let's talk about the process for developing an algorithmic strategy. Take us to the first thing that you do when you sit down and start developing one of your strategies. Yeah. So the, the first thing I do is I will usually begin with just some, some basic idea. Um, for example, you know, we can use that gap up, uh, idea that, that we were using. So that, that would start with someone that has been staring at charts for a few years and, and you start just noticing, you know, what, what happens when you have a gap up? And so you might just start with some very basic code that would say, um, you know, if, if the open of the current candle is greater than 1% of the previous candle, then go long else do nothing. And that, that's a very basic uh, idea of, of how you start, but you, you start by just writing some very basic code. But um, I should probably go back a little bit though, because you also have to determine, well, what is this going to trade on? So for me, I focus on the indexes, the S and P um, primarily. And, and, and there's reasons behind that that I won't go into, but, but basically because it has the liquidity to support the, the program that we run Um but you, you, you also have to pick the time frame. So is it going to be on a daily candle, monthly, weekly, hourly, minute? Um, but once, once you narrow into that a little bit, then you actually write the code. And then you, in essence, apply the code onto the chart. And, and you'll get an initial kind of flavor of what that, what that algorithm might be able to do. Um, and, and usually, you know, someone will add a stop, maybe a, a target of some kind. But once you have those kind of three things defined, in other words, your entry, your exit, and then any stop that you might have, then you just run a basic back test. You don't, you know, and, and I won't optimize them. And you'll just look at the raw results of what that does. And, and from there, then it can spawn uh, multiple different 
paths that you might go down. But that's the very basic way that, that I would start. And then what do you do from there? Yeah, so from there, it really depends. If, if the equity curve is just horrible, straight down, then one thing I, I might do is just flip it and say, okay, well, instead of going long, what happens if you go short? And then you run that. And eventually, let's say you get to a point where you have something, uh, some kind of an equity curve that's trending upward for the most part. That's when I'll start looking at it a little bit more carefully to see, okay, maybe there's something here. The other thing I should say, though, is I, I, I will, you know, you always want to back test as far back as you can go. Um, you know, if, if someone only goes back to like 08 or um, 09, 2010, then I, I'd be very skeptical of that algorithm. Um, you always want to back test as far back as you can go um, through uh, bull markets, bear markets and everything in between. So, um, so, so let's say you're, you're back testing to, I don't know, 2001. And you've got an equity curve that is sort of trending higher, but maybe still looks a little scary. That's usually when I'll go to the next step and I'll say, okay, there might be something here. So let me experiment with what, how big of a gap up do I want to go along with? Uh, and in this case, let's say we started with the short, the short was ugly. Then we switch it to long, the long uh, and going long, it's kind of going higher for the most part, the equity curve that is. Then I might say, okay, what happens if instead of a 1% gap, you do a half a percent gap or 2% gap or, you know, and, and you start playing with those to see how it impacts the equity curve. But you always want to be very careful because the biggest mistake a quantitative trader will make is curve fit. You know, they'll, they'll basically uh, look for something so specific that really all they're doing is, is doing uh, a curve fit. And the reality is that that algorithm probably won't do well when it goes live. So, um, but that'll start the, the sequence of, okay, so you might write in the code then, or as an input into that algorithm, a big of a gap up you want to, to enter in on so that you can then start optimizing. So you might have an input that would say, um, I don't know, uh, size of gap. And, and then what you can do is you can optimize it, you can schmoo, and it can look at a 0% gap a tenth of a percent, you know, two tenths. And, it, and you can, you can start optimizing to see where, where it makes sense to actually do that entry. And that's, that's kind of the optimization process, which is really the next step, I guess, is you start optimizing it. A question I constantly get is what platform do I use to trade futures? Well, I use TT. They are the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. Now they have integrated tools for advanced options trading, cryptocurrencies, and trade surveillance. You could try it now for free at tryttnow.com. It sounds really like your overall strategy is very discretionary to you. I'm sure you have a process, a checklist, let's call it, of things you mm -hmm. look at, but you would consider yourself discretionary. Right, that's correct. Okay, so discretionary, and, and you have... It sounds to me like you just have this rhythm of finding groups and, and these sectors that you're talking about. Um, are you using any, any automation for that, or is it just by you just spending a lot of chart time looking at things? It, it's a little bit of both. And, and you, know, you mentioned you know, futures trading and, and, and looking at the S&P. I mean, that, that's basically where I'll start with. Um, you know, one of the things that I do uh, you know, 
either on the weekend or, or definitely one night during the week is I'll just kind of look, look at the overall environment. You know, we'll look at things like I mentioned, the advanced decline line. Um, you know, I want to make sure that if I have that, you know, where where I'm, that process where I'm looking at um, individual names and sectors and so forth, I also want, want to look to see what, what the overall market is doing. Um, you know, I want to look to, and, and that's the starting place for me, you know, looking at either the S&P, Qs, and just kind of see, see what's going on in the major indices and if they're clearing resistance, if they're bogged down in a range, or if it's breaking support, right? So that's kind of the, the starting point for me. And then, if, and then if I think the environment is strong, if I think the environment is good, um, then I'm going into you know the sectors and the individual names and and the automation part comes with um, you know just basically what I do is just it's a very methodical process. I'll go through and just play, put a lot of alerts at where I think are kind of key pivot points um, and I'll basically you know rather than uh, which kind of helps me in a sense to not overtrade as much where I'm I'm just basically waiting until something triggers and if I know the alert has gone off and the market environment is right, it kind of helps me get into the trade. Is this how you've always traded or has your process changed over the years? Oh, it's definitely changed. I mean, I'm, I'm always, you know, tweaking things a, a little bit. And, uh, you know, that's the beauty of, um, of trading and, and investing is that you never get to a point where you're like, ah, I solved it. You know, um, it's one of those things that you continuously work on and, and try to get better at because from experience, and I'm, I'm sure you know this too, you just never get to that point where you're like, oh yeah, this is easy. I figured this out. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> T- talk to us about some of the indicators that you're using on your charts. Yeah, sure. So there's there's one that, um, so I love to kind of get into, into the nitty gritty. I'm not a programmer. I can't write lines of code. Um, but one of the things that I used to do in my institutional career was I knew what I wanted and, you know, going to the programmers and basically, uh, you know, programming algos, you know, fine tuning them and so forth. So um, I, I've worked with uh, an individual over the last couple of years and, and he started with an indicator and, and it's got his name in it. It's called, it's called market webs. What it basically does is, is use the volume profile and it will, you know, go ahead and, and look at like the last period. And then it will draw like a nice um, range, uh, what we call the value area. And it will give basically kind of give you a heads up if something is trading just, you know, what we say in value or, or, or in a range versus breaking out. So you could use the beauty of this is it, it doesn't matter what kind of time frame trader you are. You could be a long term trader and you can use the, you could use this on the weekly chart and you'll have a value array for the whole year. Um, if you're using the daily chart, you've got a valuary for the month. Um, and then, you know, I'll, I'll also use the one hour chart too, and you'll have a valuary for the week. So this really helps with just basically spotting breakouts. And if something is trading in a range, I really don't have a need to really trade, trade it unless it's basically just, you know, starting to kind of move from a downtrend to an uptrend or, you know, kind of recover a little bit from a dip. But for the most part, what, what I'm looking at is for, for names to kind of move out of a, consolidation area and I'll do that and uh, on the one hour chart as well as the daily chart for the most part and when they line up together then I've really got a trade. Actually I have to say that I'm surprised here and you say that you use a volume profile as a stock and you know ETF trader. I can't say that I've heard too many people before that trade stocks talk about using profiles. 
How long have you been doing that? Yeah, this has been going on now for a couple of years, and and um, we've been refining an indicator as we go along, as we find more significance with doing it. But you know, to me, it, it hits home with you know what I used to do as an institutional trader. We just always used to know that certain traders would care at different levels, um, and that kind of now how I'm trading now, you know, we'll see that certain levels will come into play. Uh, you know, again, um, and they'll almost act as uh, like gaps sometimes. So it's remarkable, you know, sometimes volume. And, and again, this will really look at uh, volume, price and time and kind of uh, meshes those, those three together. And we'll just find that there, there will be a certain level, you know, as a name is either breaking out or is getting back to like, you know, levels from where it was years ago. Um, it will just have a memory to it, which is pretty, uh, it's, it's fast. It's fascinating, but you know, we'll look at a particular level and we'll say, um, Hey, this is a level that I will, you know, take profits at, um, which again, just really helps in trading once you've kind of mapped your trade out before. And, um, and we'll see it again and again, where there'll be significance at a, at a particular level that was from years ago. Thank you for listening to futures radio show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can listen to all of our episodes on futuresradioshow.com, iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher.